lead. Mick Dittman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity. And here comes Viander Cross. Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home. Naturalism the leader. Viander Cross inch by inch is wearing him down. Naturalism still in front. He ran out near the line, but Naturalism wins in a half. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance. By stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed, you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bins. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race, and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's easy performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's easy performance the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes. I've always enjoyed talking with horse trainers. Trainers with big teams of horses and those with smaller numbers. Thoroughbred trainers, harness horse trainers. Trainers who have access to unlimited funds at the yearling sales and those who do their best with what they've got. Sometimes working with hand-me-downs from other stables. I'm always interested to learn how trainers learned their craft and how they've applied the lessons learned to their own training careers. I think I enjoy yarning most of all with the bushies, those philosophical horsemen and women who've spent years travelling to faraway race meetings with average horses, those who've been lucky enough to stumble upon a good horse along the way have proven that they can more than hold their own against their city counterparts. One such trainer is 72-year-old Paul St Vincent, who tried to retire a decade ago. Three years later, he reapplied for his licence when good friends persuaded him to train a horse or two on a hobby basis. Today, he retains only a strapper's licence, which enables him to answer the call whenever his son, Coffs Harbour trainer Aidan St Vincent, requires some help. Paul trained hundreds of winners over three decades from his Tamworth base, including several outstanding bush performers, but there was one special horse who took his owner trainer to the world of stakes racing. He expertly prepared the Jackal to win 15 races and more than a million dollars in prize money. This is a man who aspired to be a professional golfer in early life and actually completed a golf club apprenticeship. He was a good player and an even better coach, but he was happy to change direction the moment horses came into his life. It's a great pleasure to welcome Paul St Vincent to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, John. No problem. You still live in Tamworth, which is a four-hour drive from Coffs Harbour, but you get over there fairly often. Uh, yes, actually I do. Uh, whenever the boys are looking for me, of course, I head over there and that 
you wouldn't know when it would be. Could be this afternoon, tonight. It could be uh, in a week's time. You just up and off. That's about what happens, mate. Yep, got to keep the car full. <laughs> Aidan got a big kick to win a race at Grafton on Cup Day last year with a mare called Baker. He was lucky enough to get Hugh Bowman to ride her on the day. Yes, extremely lucky. Um, I think I remember when she uh, she was riding very top form, mm. and and um, I said, "Mate, you better find the best guy you can get." He said, "I've already got him." Mm. So that was that. Mm. I didn't have to worry anymore, and the rest is history. Does he like to get a second opinion from Dad from time to time? Oh yeah, but not too much on the riding style of things. They seem to have that one in their own own ideas about riders, so I don't bother going there. But then I just leave it up to them, and I think they've got enough uh, knowledge of what goes on that when things don't work out, that uh, maybe it was rider, maybe it was them, maybe it was horse, mm-hmm. and uh, they seem to be able to sort of uh, somehow get around it into the next next time they do battle. Aiden is six foot two in the old language, or one hundred and eighty-eight centimetres. So he's is that all? Nev- yeah, never going to be a jockey. But you I tell me, he's, he's written four. a lot of track work, Paul. Has he over the years? Yeah, he wrote a lot of track work. Yeah, he's a very good work rider, and also an exceptional uh, rider. Uh, you know, in the shows and that when he was a kid, and uh, he's had no problem at all ever handling any horse he's ever been given. Mm. Your other boy, Kane, did try his hand as a jockey and fairly successfully. He struggled yeah, with he... his weight all along. He actually made two attempts, didn't he, to be a professional jockey? He made a comeback. Uh, he did, yes. He went to uh, – after he was with me for a fair while and in those days um, the aim, of course, was any, any kid that did a ride in the bush or had the opportunity to get to Sydney – is where you needed to be. So we got him in with Ronnie Quinton for a three-month stint Mm. and Ronnie knew all the time that his weight was going to beat him, but, I mean, the experience he he gained at Randwick um, was absolutely just uh, priceless. Mm. Well, Aidan and Kane actually formed a training partnership on the Sunshine Coast a few years ago and it didn't get going mainly because they were situated too far out of town. Uh, yeah, it was a little bit too far and they had to cart horses to the track. Uh, they were fairly unknown up there and they, um, they won a few races, but it was a hard, hard place to get into. Now, Aidan stayed on for a while as a, a foreman for Chris Munce. In fact, I think he ran Chris's Sunshine Co. satellite stable. Yes, that's right. That's in the old, uh... Uh, where Bruce McLaughlin's old barns were, mm. at the, opposite the race course at the Sunshine Coast. And um, Chris uh, Chris wanted a foreman and he asked around and uh, Aidan secured the job fairly easily, I'm led to believe. Mm. And Kane worked for Daryl Hansen for a while up there. Yes, he did. He worked for a few different trainers and then he, he uh, went back to riding a little bit and rode a few races. And um, then he worked for Daryl Hanson up until possibly only, oh, I don't know. Look, mate, it might only have been six to eight months ago, 12 mm. months at the most. Yeah. 
But they're together again now, aren't they, in Coffs Harbour? Kane's working with Aidan. Yes, that's correct. Yep, he uh, he's always seems to be riding a horse more than most times up the beach at Coffs Harbour, and uh, and I think they'll make a good go of it now because uh, mm. they understand where you know what each one's best at, and um, they can they get on extremely well. Uh, Kane likes a gallop along Boambi Beach, does he? Well, I can tell you, I've had a couple of goes. I wouldn't mm. say I had a gallop; I might have just cantered a few. Yeah, but. Um, it's it's quite an exhilarating feeling mm, riding along the beach, you know, with mm. the salt spray in your face and just what, looking at the waves. You grew up in Newcastle. You left school when you were 15 and by then you'd developed a passion for golf. Now you gained a golf club apprenticeship, I think, at Merriweather. What did the job entail? What were you doing as an apprentice? Well, you were learning to be a golf professional all the time trying to improve your game and also then the the facets of being a club professional to fall back on if you didn't make it playing for money you're able to hopefully get a club job and teach hmm. and uh, run a yeah run a thriving business to help members at the golf club not only teach but start fields sell them sell the people equipment hmm. so all of a sudden you have to become a businessman also yeah. You moved to another pro shop later, didn't you, at Belmont? That's right, under the care of a guy called Paul Robinson. I finished my apprenticeship there and then I stayed on with Paul till I was in the late 20s um, as a teaching professional and, and, for the want of a better word, assistant professional with him there at the golf club. You knew a man called Russell Murray at the time, who had harness horses stabled on that old Newcastle showground and you started to dabble with the trotters and paces in your spare time. Did you get to drive them in track work? Uh, oh, yes, yes. I, I held a licence, actually. I, I read, had a few um, rides at Tangleth Show, a few drives. Did you at the show, yeah. And um, I used to ride, quite drive quite a lot of track work, yes, and... Um, we were in Barnes next door to uh, a great man called Jim Patterson. Mm. It was a, it was an exceptionally uh, good um, trotting trainer. Later, to become a very good galloping trainer in Grafton. Mm, he did, and uh, his his knowledge was uh, was very good, and it was very easy to pick up little things from Jim because he loved to have a talk. Russell Murray had one thoroughbred among all of those standard breads. And that was a horse called Star of the North, and he was the first galloper you ever put a hand on. Uh, that's correct. Yes, I uh, we had this horse there, Star of the North, owned by a mate of his, and um, I was able to sort of do a bit of work with him and uh, between him and the trotters, and um, it was uh, it was very very enjoyable. But um, I always had to be on on deck all the time because in those days it was six days a week. Mm. as a golf pro, so uh, Russell did the major work and I did uh, what I could before and after work. Now, getting on towards your 21st birthday, you applied for the job as club pro at Narrabri. You bought yourself a car and off you went to that lovely little town on the Namoy River. You did a lot of teaching at Narrabri and you loved teaching golf. Yeah, my word. I think it was uh, – I must have moved there very early in 
in um, in November because I turned 21 on the 10th of November. Mm. And um, I can remember that up there in my first days there. But uh, Narrabri was good to me. It was a good club, um, great people. The only thing that, of course, upset us all the time was when a flood would come. Mm. Yeah, you're right on the Namor. You couldn't miss it. No, the golf club runs beside it and um, that's where the water comes to keep the greens alive and mm. and that's where when the Namoy overflows runs right through the golf course. Mm. You later worked at golf clubs in Armadale and Gunnedah before seeking a change of pace. Somehow you got into the business of selling caravans and Tooza horse floats in Tamworth. How the hell did that happen? Well... A mate of mine, Bruce McKnight, was the golf pro in Gunnedah, and um, we were very good friends, and Terry Hayes, who was the golf pro in Tamworth at the time. Mm. Um, and uh, Bruce said to me, I think he said, this working seven days a week's too much. We should try something else. Mm. The only thing I we both realised later in life was if you're going to get anywhere, you've nearly got to work seven days a week no matter what you do. Mm. So uh, we uh, took on his father's caravan business in um, Tamworth, which was called McKnight's Caravan, just diagonally across the corner from the golf club in Bridge Street. Mm-hmm. And we sold caravans and uh, a lot of Tusa horse floats from there over the years. One day at the Tamworth Golf Club, you met a man who would have an enormous impact on your future. It was Merv Corliss who had a very high profile among country horse trainers at the time. Before long, you were helping out in the mornings at Merv's stables and sometimes driving his horse float to the races. You became great friends. Yeah, we did. Um, Let me think. I I met him at the golf club one day and I realised who he was and I said to Terry Hayes, "Um, I've got to get to know this bloke better. And the rest is history. Um, yeah. I ended up uh, giving away the job at the uh, at the caravan, and uh, you know I gave away my share of the business at the caravan and horse float deal, and I just took on working with Merv as much as I could, so I could possibly gain you know any amount of knowledge. One day you were gobsmacked when Merv pointed to a block of five boxes at the back of his Tamworth stables, and he said, "Paul." Get your trainer's licence straight away and you can have those five boxes and you can have the horses in them. Did he want to cut back at that stage? Oh, yes, he wanted to cut back a little bit, yeah, because he had up to 25 horses there at one stage and um, and where he lived on the place, next, just down the road from the showground opposite the race course. Mm. And um, he wanted just to cut back a bit and he wanted to do what I gave away, play golf. 20th of August 1988 was a significant day in your life. I don't know if that rings a bell. You were training a gelding called Lawrover, who was engaged in a mild maiden at Corindai. Now, Merv had runners at the same meeting, so he decided to take Lawrover with his team, and you took a few more of his horses to Moree. It was a pity, in a way, that you didn't get to cheer home your very first winner as a trainer. Um, oh well, that's that's the you know, 
that that's the way the ball bounces. But it didn't really worry me too much. We all had jobs to do, and and I was doing my best out at Moree, and um, and I yeah, he was a, he wasn't a great horse. I think he only won one race, hmm. and uh, he was uh, owned by um, a guy called Peter Smith and his brother in Tamworth, who bred him. They, they did a lot of breeding. And Peter had been a great owner of Mervs for many, many years. And that was one of the horses they gave me to, that I took over. Inherited, and, yeah. Um, I think, if I stand corrected, Scotty Norris might have ridden him. Yes, he did. I checked him out. S. Norris. All right. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Well, soon after that, the Tamworth Jockey Club opened its new on-course stabling barn and they call for expressions of interest. Now, you applied for 10 boxes, you got them, and suddenly you were a very serious horse trainer. Well, all of a sudden, um, yes, uh, it was a bit different than five and, and you know, and getting a bit of, uh, getting a, a little bit of an income elsewhere on the way through, but all of a sudden now it was... Be, be good at what you do, or you'll probably be out the back door. Perish on the vine. Yep. Yeah. Well, it didn't end there, Paul. A few years later, you had up to 46 horses in work. You had 15 in town and the rest at Steve Miller's property, out of town, and you were running between the two places. You were a busy bloke. Um, my word. It was uh, out at Erin Park, which is probably... Oh, 15 minutes from the race course. And someone would have to be there twice a day. And someone would have to be at the other place twice a day. So uh, I was just about between, uh, with the help of the boys, uh, we had both both places covered, which I can tell you meant, meant we were always on our bike. You had some wonderfully loyal owners during your training career. One of the earliest was the late Bob Oatley, the legendary businessman, winemaker, resort owner, philanthropist and yachtsman. And in that latter capacity, Bob was best known as the owner of the famous yacht Wild Oats, a nine-time Sydney Hobart winner on line honours. I don't think it was generally known he was a racing man. Yes, well, he raced horses with um, Neil and Mia Latimer, and um, they raced a lot. And, and I got a, an off one of Merv's had previously, and he said, "You better take this bloke on this prep." And I didn't really have much of an idea that I thought just the Latimer's owned it. And then I looked in the race book one day, and um, I see this R.A. Oatley and Mrs. Oatley, and I suddenly dawned upon me who it was. And uh, after that, I think we had quite a quite a few for, for Neil and Mia and um, Mr. and Mrs. Oatley, and with quite good success too. I think Bob passed away just a few years ago, didn't he, Paul? Maybe four or five years? I think so. He, he moved. They were in Musselbrook at this time at Eden Glassy Stud. And then he they left there, or it was Rosemount Stud, um, and they left there and went to Mudgee. And, of course, then things just just uh, grew out of all proportion, of course, in the wine industry and um, and with what he did with his, with his yachting, yeah. Mm. Other owners back then included John Park, who had the Strathedon stud near Tamworth. The Latimer family, you've already mentioned, they raced many horses, including 
the legendary bush horse Akwazov. There was David Lawrence, there was Angus Barlow, Jeff Taylor and Eric Steer from Walker, all unshakably loyal people. Yep, my word. Um, uh, they raced, um, they had Akwazov, of course, but Merv trained him all through his career, right, um, mm. over from his place and had, had um, Akwazov's mother, Aquatana. And um, I, I never got into that uh, breed of the horse. I was always on the other side of the fence. Merv had those ones. But um, uh, in the end, we, I trained some good horses for Neil and me. My word, I think a little mare. Um, one of the best was a Grosvenor mare mm-hmm. that won, won a 1,000 metre race at, and won the Walker Maiden. Mm. Maiden. The big maiden, quite, yeah. You know, yeah. for a um, for a a, um, a Grosvenor mare. Paul, I'll just get you to stand by for a moment. We're going to clear a commitment on the podcast. We'll come back with you after this. Royal Randwick on Saturday, February 11th, will host four important stakes races. The Group 2 Apollo Stakes and the Group 2 Light Fingers will be supported by the Group 3 Southern Cross and the Group 3 Triscay Stakes. The Apollo Stakes, inaugurated in 1977, has launched the autumn campaigns of some great horses. Winks won it three times, Sunline twice, and Juggler twice. Other luminaries to win the 1400 metre weight for age feature include Grand Army, Private Steer, Lonro, Naturalism, Bozam and Emancipation. Another feature on the day will be the fifth running of the English Millennium, a $2 million race for English sales graduates. Castelvecchio staged a freakish performance to win the first millennium in 2019, followed by Prime Star, Profiteer and the Philly Extravagant Star. One week later, February the 18th, Rosehill Gardens will host the Group 2 Hobartville Stakes, the Group 2 Silver Slipper and the Group 2 Millie Fox for fillies and mares. It's all happening in Sydney Racing every Saturday right through to the Championships on the 1st and 8th of April. Special guest is retired trainer Paul St Vincent. Paul, let's run through some of the talented horses you've trained over the years. You had a very fast mare in the early 1990s by the name of Bally Maureen. She won 11 races. She ran 11 placings. She never won in town, but she was placed five times in the city. She won four straight at one stage with Harry Troy in the saddle. Now, you tell me she was an unpleasant, unlikable tart and a notorious barrier rogue. Well, I suppose putting it in those terms, that's that's been pleasant because we uh, we are on air. You've called but, her a lot worse. Yeah, my <laughs> word, and I guarantee I wasn't the only one. No, but uh, imagine those poor guys at the barriers at times. Mm. But um, you know, she was a sort of mare. She was very good, very strong um, in in not only in in presence but also in um, in her attitude. Um, sometimes I'd have to rug her when she was in a bad mood because the kids weren't real keen on it. Um, but uh, very good, you know, exceptionally ability, was never the soundest mare of all time. But when she was on song, she was very, very good. The only thing she had was terrible manners in the barriers where she just would want to try and 
mm. rear up all the time and things like that. And um, But they were the days, H. Troy in the saddle, um, owned by a team of um, Gunnedah businessmen, um, headed by a good mate of mine called Robert Heath. Mm. And um, it was sort of great to go to the races with a horse like that because she could certainly turn heads. Mm. And she had a reputation as a barrier rogue too. Whenever you turned up at a Sydney race meeting, you'd normally get a comment. Um, yes, not you again was about normally what it was. <laughs> yes, something along but, those lines. Yes, but anyway, they helped me, you know, understandably all the time and we got through, you know, a few times, um, a few times it didn't work properly, mm. but that's the game. But I think one day in town when she reared up and galloped the lap of the track, mm. it was a spring cup meeting and then, um, and then, uh, Came back to the enclosure and uh, the head steward looked at me and I said, she can go back, mate. Mm. I'm happy. And the owner said, so am I. And in those days, uh, on went uh, Clark of the Course, led her back round to the barriers, and she went and won by four. Goodness me. So if she hadn't really got around, there was probably would have been a bit of a a sad deal, wouldn't it? Yeah, it took the silly edge off her. Yeah, more than (laughs) anything, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I did. I did try a couple of times at sprinting, sprinting her up of a morning, you know, this sort of thing to take the edge off her. Mm. But I always found that only made things worse. Yeah. So you know, it's. Uh, I think it was only when she got to the races, like track work, she was a lovely meteorite work, mm. right? But um, she was uh, race day. I think once she got to those barriers, you know, Nerves. we'd go the morning sometimes, and mm. she'd walk and stand there. And then race day, of course, things became different. But I think since then, things like earmuffs and barrier blankets, yeah. you know, which weren't around in those days, uh, are a tremendous asset to trainers. Mm. We've been talking about Bally Maureen, erratic, unpredictable, 11 wins and 11 placings. You'd like another half a dozen in the stable. Now, Paul, perhaps the cheapest horse you ever bought was a big, strong gelding called Roulette Kite. You bought him on spec for $2,000 and he was quickly snapped up by stable clients. Where did you find him? Um, he was at a, say, a horse sale at Tamworth. Mm-hmm. And this is a long time ago because John Cunliffe used to run the Tamworth sales at the showground, aided by Kim Stewart, the race caller. Mm-hmm. And um, I just liked the look of him. He was pretty – he was big. He was strong. He wasn't all that flash but had everything in the right place. And I thought, well, $2,000 is not a great lot of money. And um, not that I uh, had too many 2000s in my hand. I was hoping to make sure I uh, I unloaded him quick and I'm going to him before he even, before he even got out of, the, out, of the, out of the sale arena and up to the stalls. Um, he was gone. He was sold. Yeah. Yeah, I had um, two or three committeemen, Alan Ackling, Lex Wollaston, and a couple of the club patrons mm. in him. So I was sort of training all of a sudden for some of the uh, the guys that were a bit fair dinkum, yeah. and uh, luckily we had a good run with him. Oh, you sure did. He won 10. He ran 17 placings. Two of his wins were at Rose Hill and Canterbury, and I notice he was ridden in most of those wins by Troy Brandenburg, who's now heavily involved, I believe, in equine therapy. 
Uh, yes, Troy rode him a lot. Um, I can't remember who rode him in his first win. I think it might have been Darren Jones who might have ridden him in his first win. He won the Romantic Dream, I think. No, he didn't. Mm. He didn't win the Romantic Dream. He wasn't quite uh, there yet. He ran second. Yeah. And and Troy rode him in a lot of his wins. And um, uh, we had a good association with Troy. And um, he was an exceptional horseman. And I believe he's somewhere in uh, southern Queensland. Uh, into into horse therapy quite big time, yes. Yes, he is a very good at it. He had some experience in the United States, came back to Australia and set up shop. Now, you had a lot of time for Spartan Chief, who retired prematurely with a tendon injury. You've never forgotten a win one Tamworth Cup day when you gained the services of a visiting Sydney jockey called Ken Russell. Ken loved nothing more than a bush race meeting. Yeah, he did. He rode him and he he rode him a peach, um, uh, got the cash, and and the owners were just over the moon. And um, they said, when when do you think you'll, he can ride him again? I said, oh, well, we'll have to find out. We might have to take him to town. Well, they were all from Sydney, so I didn't worry them too much. Oh. Um, I'm not quite sure if we actually got to town with him. I can't remember. I know Ken rode him again, but then I said, look, I said, I've got a guy down there I believe is is one of the best bush jockeys of all time. I said, he'll ride him next time up here, and don't worry, he'll ride him He'll ride him as good as anybody can. Yeah, he certainly did. And his did. name, mm, Danny Fram. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I've got uh, Danny penciled in for a tribute a little later in our talk. Oh, right. You tell a lovely story about a horse called Trinity. And this is the kind of story you'll never hear from a city trainer. The owner of the horse, Eric Steer, in his rough and ready way, sent him to you on a closed-in old truck. The truck pulled up at Merv Corliss's stables and his Trinity walking about on the tray with no head collar. He's loose. It was an absolute miracle he got to you in one piece. Well, the truck had uh, pretty good sides on it and, and, and boards for a roof, but there was no roof. And uh, it was his old cattle sheep truck. And he arrived there, yep, pulled up at Move Callers Stables, Showground Road, and um, he just slid the tailgate open and out he ran. <laughs> and, what did um, he do when he jumped off the truck? He just... Oh, he had, a, he had a bit of a tear around. But the front gate was closed, so he couldn't get out. And we had uh, we had a little trotting track on one side, and there was a lot of room around either side the barns and up the backyards. Mm. And of course, we left a couple of yards open, and uh, in he went, and the gate was closed. Mm. And um, he had been broken in, but he was uh, he was uh, hadn't been touched since he'd been broken in, and uh, he was quite an amazing horse, actually, mm. very touchy, and luckily. Um, Jane Clements was there. Well, she was Jane Reed then, only a kid, mm. probably 16, 17-year-old, and she helped me corral him, and then it was winter time, and I thought, oh, I'm going to have to put a rug on this horse. Mm. Anyway, we got it on, but it took a while. Anyway, that was <laughs> it. But he went on to win some very good races, that horse. Actually, he was a very pretty good horse who did have some some tendon issues, um, but I think he ran second in a Walker Cup, probably should have won. And he ran a good race, a couple of good races in town. Mm. And also 
won won a lot of races around uh, around the bush. Yeah, well, he won seven all up. He won three at Tamworth, and one each at Gleninus, Scone, Grafton, and Inverell. You carted him around a bit. So Eric Steer was a bit of a character. Oh, Eric was a was a great old bloke, a great old bushy. Um, you know, he never nothing too much used to worry him. Um, all he wanted was a fair go, and whatever, Paul, whatever you want to do, you do. Let me know, and that's about where we where it went to. And yeah. um, you know, he was a great bloke to train for. Like I had a lot of Walker owners mm. um, at that time, and uh, you know, Bob Gill, Gabby War. Um, uh, G- uh, Jeff um, uh, Jeff Taylor from uh, Tamex Stud mm. and uh, the, the president of the club, um, Tim Fenwick and his wife, Jane, who still race horses now. And um, and they were very good owners to me and Walker, exceptional. He had a lot of fun with a horse called Night Tides. He won 11. He ran 24 placings in the late 80s and early 90s. He won as far away as Gilgandra and Canamble. He had 74 starts all up. He was a sound old bloke, was he? He was sound until late, very late in, the, in, in his stage, right? But that was just a bit of wear and tear and we retired him. Um, he was by Sylvester yeah. out, of a, out of a mare called One-Eyed Queen. Right? And she would, had been a very good mare. And David Lawrence and uh, a mate of his met Merv and I at the sales one day at um, Inglis's on a Sunday morning. And he went through the ring and they paid, uh, They bought, we bought him, um, but he was passed in. So um, I went back a little bit jaded, but I thought, oh, well, you never know what the future brings. And, of course, the next month, next afternoon, David rang me. He said, I went out to Ram- um, Warwick Farm this morning. Mm-hmm. Had a look at that horse, and he said, "Well, how much do you want?" And he bought him. Yeah, oh, good. And uh, and up he came. He uh, we broke him in and um, got him going. And he was uh, he was a very good two year old, three year old. He, he raced very well all through his time. I think he might. He, if he didn't win in town, he went very close. Mm, I don't think he won in town, he, but he uh, was he close. Might have yeah, re- might have replaced one Saturday behind one of Steve Steve. Um, uh, what's the name's horses at um, at Rose Hill? I'm sure. Uh, Steve Miller might have won the race, and I think mm. I ran third or second. Mm. But it was an enormous run. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking about a horse called Night Tides. Balouse was a handy horse for his owners Bob Oatley and the Latimers. He won yeah. five races, one of them way out west at Warren. Now, Paul, he was ridden in four of his five wins by one of your favourite jockeys. The late Darren Jones, who lost his life in a race fall at Warrialda in 2021. You had great success with Darren, who was a jockey who earned the respect of all racing people in the northern region. Yeah, well, in those days, he was, uh, he was apprenticed to Merv, and I think he might, may have just come out of his time. And I said to him, I said, uh, Merv had trained the horse before and Darren knew him. And then he came and Merv said, you have a go at this bloke this time. And we got him ready and we went to Warren. Um, I think it might have been first up. And um, he he just, you know, he won very, very well. 
and the Grafton Carnal was coming up and I sort of, uh, we had a few other races in between later on and um, he'd won a few before for us. I think he won, he might have won some for Merv as well as me. Um, but then um, uh, we went to Grafton where he was struck tragedy. The horse snapped a leg on the bee grass over there one day, which put him, you know, we had to put him down. Mm. But he was an exceptionally good horse and strong, magnificent chestnut and um and just game and would would want to run you know would want to run with that bridle in his mouth yeah and that was baloose yeah while we're talking about jockeys let's pay tribute to some of the riders who contributed to the success of your stable over a long period of time one of them was the remarkable robert thompson who won several races on the jackal the horse we're going to highlight a little later Robert must have been a delight to work with, Paul, was he? Oh, easy. Mm. He walked into the stables one day and I said, look, I said, now we've got these on the – got two two-year-olds on, on Friday and that bloke and that bloke. I said, so uh, I can't split the two-year-olds up because there won't be enough, so which one do you want to ride? He said, oh, I don't care. <laughs> you make your mind up. Mm. And um, he rode one of the, he rode both of the other ones, and I think he probably um, may have even ridden close to nearly three of them that day. Did he really? Yeah. Yeah. If not, he rode a double. I know for sure. Yeah. Mm. Mm. You speak very highly of a great country jockey called Wayne Wheat. Uh, yeah. Uh, known through his mates as Turtle, because he he does things very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> even even when he speaks, he's not in a rush. Um, you want to have a yarn to him, make sure you've got a bit of time and make sure the bridge is full. <laughs> but I uh, know Turtle was a great rider. He was from out west. Out at, he was at Walgett for many years yeah. and then decided to move to Tamworth later in life and um, and rode here very, very successfully also. You know, used to ride works me and virtually had the pick of any of my rides back in those days, whatever he wanted first. Mm. And he was he was still riding for me when the Jackal and the Ramornies. Yeah. Remember, Robert was on him because he, you know, he was the sort of guy mm. Turtle would say, oh, no, mate, no, you got him in Sydney. No, don't put me on. No, yeah. I, I did that in there. Put, um, put one of the boys on. He said, oh. Wanted to ring Robbie and put him on. Yeah. And that's how it all started. Yeah. Greg Ryan helped you out on many occasions. Yes, Greg uh, rode in Dubbo for many, you know, for a long time and Keith Swan brought him to this area and he rode a lot of horses and a lot, a lot of winners and won a lot of premierships. Mm. And um, if you wanted to get him to ride one for you, you had to stand in line behind, behind the big fella. Yeah. Keith Swan, mm. um, which was no problem. And if all of a sudden you had something that was going a bit better and Keith didn't have a have a runner in the race, I can assure you Greg's wife, Pauline, was on the phone very early. Yeah, Pauline Ryan, yep. <clears throat> yep. She was Greg's manager for, for most of his career. We've already mentioned Harry Troy, another one of your go-to jockeys. Um, yeah, Harry's yeah super, super rider. Super rider, super bloke, you know, real good fella. Got to know him very well, um, uh, and uh, and you know he, he could ride with the best guys in town, in my opinion. Mm. 
Oh, no doubt about it. Mm. The late Danny Fram, Paul, was one of your great favourites, a wonderful race rider and uh, an innately gifted horseman. His opinion was keenly sought by trainers right throughout the region. Well, very early in his days, I never really knew Danny because Danny was involved with, uh, he was in Baraba, um, Queensland before that, of course, and he came down and then he was in Baraba and rode work for the Smiths, um, um, Jeff and his brother, um, and then and I think for old Ernie Smith, uh, their father, who actually I had never met, he was before my time, and that was uh, that was very much a um, you know a, a thing that Danny would do, and then he'd ride for everybody else. He used to ride for Steve Miller. Um, then he came to Tamworth full on and I got him to start to ride a few horses from me and um, uh, got to ride a few horses and um, and he was invaluable riding horses and also to put on to ride winners, mm. you know. He, he was probably one of the longest riders of all time as in, as in um, stirrup length, right, but that didn't matter. An old guy once said, well, the longer you ride, the longer you stay on. <laughs> and... And um, that's about what Danny was about. But he um, he used to uh, – he rode a lot of work. And, and, I mean, you know, you ride, Paul, you got anything else? We got anything else to ride or we done? Mm. You know? So, no, mate, it's fine. We're, we're all good. And um, he also rode um, that uh, good horse you talked about earlier. Um, he rode him in a couple of his wins too, right, which mm. is very – and won a lot of races for me. As a matter of fact, I don't think anyone's ever heard the story – Danny came off one one Friday, the races. Anyway, everything was all right. He, he, he just had a few aches and pains in the back of his neck and that anyway. So he turns up on Saturday morning to ride work. And I said, mate, you shouldn't be here. Go and rest. He said, no, I just want to get rid of the creeks out and see how I'm going. <laughs> anyway, Danny legged up. Danny rode about three work. Anyway, he'd come back and I went and took another horse down to the barn and came up and here's Danny sitting on the chair. Mm. I said, hey, how you going, mate? He said, oh, I don't think things are right. And I said, okay, well, so next minute he's in Tamworth Hospital, had x-rays and they said, don't move. Oh, dear me. Mm. He had uh, he'd broken his neck, right, and, and uh, vertebrae to a degree that he was out of action for probably, oh, you know, a good three to six months. Yeah. But that's the sort of lake he was. And he'd ridden work at Tamworth yeah. that morning. Yeah, rode work and then ended up up in the hospital. Goodness me. And how sad it was, Paul, when Danny lost his battle with cancer only last year. Yeah. Up in, um, was it, uh, uh, not, uh, not Marie, but where was it? Uh, um, up in Queensland, I just can't remember exactly where. Yeah, she'd been, moved, yeah, correct. Yeah, moved. It was up um, only only middle middle way up, um, not even as far as Rockhampton, I don't think. Mm. And um, But I often ran into him at Eagle Farm at the races, at the at the uh, working works of the morning mm. because his brother used to work in the, uh, in the, the, the box at the Gap mm. and Danny used to often be there. Yeah. So they always stay alone, whatever. And um, but no, it was very sad. But he he went back to Maureen, lived, and then he moved up to Queensland, where his brother's family was, and passed away up there. Yeah. Mm. 
Another legendary bush jockey was Leon Fox, who quit the saddle in the early 90s to become a trainer. You were very fortunate to have a brief association with this remarkable horseman. Yes, I was. Um, I'm not quite sure whether he ever rode a horse for me or he rode a winner for me, but I know I'd often take horses with Merv or on my own to win for and um, and saddle them up and Leon Fox would ride them. Mm. And, I mean, I said to Merv one day, what, what am I going to do? He said, nothing. He said, he'll give you the saddle. You'll already have the bridle. Just put the saddle on and make sure his mane and tail's brushed and and uh, leave it to him. <laughs> and yeah. I said, well, I thought to myself, well, I'm glad I can drive a car, so otherwise <laughs> I wouldn't have been much use to it. <laughs> And if he didn't win on him, he went very close. Oh, he was unbelievable. Mm. You know, he, he was just exceptional and they were always in the right spot. Yeah. Always, you know, all the time. Yeah. And um, always a heavyweight rider, you know, and, and, and uh, today's scales, he would have been a lot, it would have been a lot better offering, mm. you know, where they ride now. But in those days, I think it was about 59 kilos, except for when you had a, um, or whatever it was, nine stone, something in those days, mm. and except when you had a, an open handicap mm. and um, he'd ride the top weights always. It's as though someone every – they always left the top weights for L Fox. Yeah, absolutely. That's how he could ride. Yeah, and his father was a great bloke and a great trainer. Yes, you know, yeah. Old, exceptional. Yeah, mm. great old fella. Yeah, tremendous. Tremendous people. I'm going to put the speed on, mate, because I yep. want to devote a fair bit of space – to your once-in-a-lifetime horse. The Jackal was bred by Jerry Harvey, who catalogued him for sale at a Magic Millions mid-year yearling auction. Now, you'd yeah. previously pre-trained many young horses for Jerry Harvey in preparation for the ready-to-run sales, so you knew the bloke well. Oh, exceptionally well, yeah. Yep, yep. Great bloke and, uh, and we had a great relationship, very much so. Now, you'd trained a half-brother to the Jackal previously by Timber Country. He must have shown you something. Yes, he did. I think his name was, um, from what I, I think his name was Headset. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he'd been to Sydney in, in work with other people and came back a little bit worse for wear, um, but in good condition. Mm. And um, he... Uh, I found out he put a couple of gallops in one day to me were just exceptional. Mm. I thought, this horse has got a bit of ability. And then there was another one that was by Timber Country that that really showed me a lot. But I just kept thinking this Timber Country's too much Timber Country in there. They they looked like, they looked like oh, for the want of a better word, camels. Yeah, big, big gangly oh. things, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, very big gangly, big long necks. And, uh, you know, it looks like they might mature when they were seven. <laughs> you turned up at the Gold Coast sale, very keen on the cult by the great bread and butter sire Bite the Bullet, out of that mere positive surprise. You tell me the bank was a bit light on the day. What bank? There was none. <laughs> Lucky they didn't charge to get into the sale. I wouldn't have got in the gate. Oh, dear but, me. Um, I uh, now I was pretty well um, up to doing things with Jerry in those days, and I knew the horse 
was going to go through, and it interested me because I'd never ever seen this horse, and um, and he was out of the same era as a couple of the others, but he's by Timber Country, and I believe the first real uh, horse that was capable of getting sprinters yeah. up to a little bit more. You know, whereas I thought the Timber Country for mile and a half horses. Yeah, this bloke was by Bite the Bullet. Not, yeah, Bite the Bullet. Yeah. yeah, and he came into the ring, you know, and I threw a bit in here and another one there and another one there and and I don't really can't remember the latter part of the show, but next minute the hammer went down and I looked around and thought, one dude bought that horse. And uh, next minute the old uh, auctioneer sent a bloke over with the little book and, oh, you know, yeah. that meant sign here. 20,000. 20,000. I said, oh, well, I'll get around this one somehow. I'm not quite sure how, but I'll do my best. A bit later on in the day, um, I went back to over to Jerry's show where Barham led all their horses and, and um, Broomby, mm-hmm. and he said, um, who bought that horse? I said, I did. He said, oh. I said, oh, was right. I said, I haven't <laughs> got too involved to my name. <laughs> Anyway, Jerry just in his ways, look, he just shrugs his shoulders, opens the palms of, me, of his hands and said, oh, well, something will happen. Yeah. You know, and um, at that stage I wasn't quite sure whether I thought he's going to help me or I've got to go and help myself. So, mm-hmm. And um, anyway, it all worked out and I was able to get, get the chaff together over a bit of time and pay yeah. for him. He said, pay when you can. Yep, that's right. That's the sort of bloke you can. And yeah. we broke him in and brought him down to Tamworth. And he had a couple of – he had a little prep and went back home and cut him. And then he come back down and another little prep and mm. went back home. And then he was starting to put it together a little bit. And um, I'm pretty sure that um, the guys rang me and said, oh, we've got uh, – there's 10 on the truck coming down tomorrow. Mm. And I said, oh. I only had nine boxes. Oh, dear. Left. And I said, oh, well, old fella, you must go and have another little break. Mm. And uh, so off he went back home to Armadale. Yeah. Um, had, a, had a breather up there at Jerry's place. And um, and then when the dust settled and other horses, because the horses moved very quickly in and out of the place, mm. he, uh, I got another load one day and um, I said to Mike Murphy, I said, what's, yeah, right, 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 yeah, right. I said, what's that one? He said, don't you recognise that horse? I said, no, I don't have I had him before. He mm-hmm. said, yes, you have. I said, oh, okay. Well he said, he's yours. I said, oh, really? Yeah, you mean he'd, he'd furnish that much? Yep, I didn't even recognise him. Goodness me. You know, but there was a truck full of chestnuts, mm-hmm. right, so it was a little bit um, – they were everywhere. You know, we're from the, the, the best Western type deal and other things like that. Mm-hmm. Had a mess like that. There was a lot of chestnuts everywhere. Mm-hmm. So he came back into work and then – Away we went. Mm. I'll say, well, he uh, first time at the races, he reared in the gates, late scratching. Next time, yeah. with Luke Morgan up, he comes from last for an eye-catching second at Tamworth. You turned him out straight away. You can do these things when you own them yourself. You didn't run him for four months. He resumed in a 900-metre maiden at Scone. Luke Morgan was unavailable Greg Ryan stepped in and he won by almost six lengths. What did Greg say to you? Well, it's funny because I was talking to, uh, might have been Jeff Newling from the paper on, on one side of me, and I looked up and here's Greg with this big smile on his face as he mm. came back to the enclosure. 
and he just kept shaking his head. And he was he was still up on top of the horse uh, before he even got off. And he said, he said, if this is not a very very good horse, I'll give it away. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh well, that sounds good. And um, but he did show exi- an unbelievable turn of foot mm-hmm. to to put him away very very quickly. And I can always remember Ronnie Quinton said to me, he said, I watched the race of that horse one day when he won at Scone. He said, and I said to a mate of mine, we should try and buy that horse. Mm. Right? And um, and he said, we never followed it up. And uh, then he went on from there. The rest is sort of gradual history, but a few hiccups on the way through. Oh, of course. Well, here's the Jackal's record, just to refresh your memory, Paul. 74 starts, 15 wins, 16 placings, and just under 1.1 million. He won two Ramornies at Grafton. He won a Group 3 Star Kingdom Stakes, a Group 3 Healy Stakes in Brisbane. He won a listed Falvalon Quality in Brisbane and he won a listed Prime Minister's Cup. I think it's fair to say for the St Vincent family, he really was a life-changing horse. Yes, undoubtedly. Um, I can assure you that he uh, was able to pay a lot of bills and keep the show running and um, and a lot of, got us off onto a real good, uh, uh, like a real good foot and wanting to be there of a morning and, you know, working. And, um, mm. oh, of course, it gets gobbled up, as you well know, in this game. And um, we tried a few other horses without any great success, little success, but nothing like that. No. But um, the time came to retire him and, and I thought, well, that's the best thing can happen, then I'll go too. <laughs> well, you've paid him back in spades. He's still on your property. I think he's 20, isn't he? Yep. Yep. Living the life of Riley. He wants for nothing. Yep. That's my my word. But um, I can advise anyone that, that thinks they've got a very good horse that they should open a superannuation fund for him. Because mm. I can tell you what, after about um, uh, another 10 years at home at leisure, when you go through a few droughts and things like that, you could do with one. Yeah. <laughs> mm, but uh, no, he's done He's done very well and he can live there forever. You have a yarn with him occasionally? Yep. Yeah, my word. I'll bet you um, do. Yep. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he had, a, he had a few issues in life with shoeing and things like that. He had, he had, uh, he had one flat foot and one upright foot mm. and – that would take a hell of a lot of times to make sure it was right. And in the end, I had a couple of very, very good farriers that got him right for me when it was required, Yes, you know, when it really was. Mm. So, no, it was a great a great thrill. And uh, Robert had never won a, never won a Ramoni. Meant a lot to him, yeah. Yeah. Then he won another one mm. on him, two in a row. And then I think he might have – I don't know what happened then, either the next year or the next year. And I rang him after the race. I said, good on you, mate. He said, what do you mean? He said, you started all this. Did he? And anyway. <laughs> he won uh, another one for Rod Northam, I think. Uh, he did a little chestnut horse. Yeah. And then he won for um, his old mate from um, Taree. Yeah. Ross Stitt. Ross Stitt. So he's won four Ramones. Yeah, I think he's won four, yep. yep. Mm. Yeah. We've already acknowledged the boys, Aidan and Kane. I think we should do likewise for your two wonderful girls, Lucinda and Erlina. 
Now, both girls knew what stable chores, race meetings and yearling sales were all about as they were growing up, and during your busy years, I believe Lucinda handled the thankless task of bookkeeping. Yeah, she did, actually. Um, when when she wasn't sort of at the stables or riding her horses, of course, she was. Uh, she did a university degree after she left high school at uh, Armadale, and I was lucky because she did it externally. Um, so she was back home here, you know, a lot of times, mm. and she was able to put things together because that's when all of a sudden the computers came into play, mm. and I stopped writing accounts with my hand, and she started to put them all together that day. Yeah. That way, of course, it worked well. And my other daughter, well, she was married uh, uh, fairly young, and she um, she had, uh, used to ride shows and all that sort of thing with the boys early in their piece, and um, – and um, she now, uh, I think she works for the um, uh, works for the government, mm. works for the land land care government, uh, the Great Western Division of, of New South Wales. Mm. Mm. And a tribute to the lady whose patience and understanding over many years made this all possible, Paul. Your wonderful wife Therese, who's always been hands on at home and a regular at the races. Oh, yeah, she knows what a shovel is, for sure, (laughs) but no doubt about that. But, um, oh, yeah, although we still fight like cats and dogs, but I suppose that might be what keeps us going. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to get a few points, eh? (laughs) No, no, she's great. Well, I'm delighted to hear you're still spending time in a racing stable getting over to Coffs Harbour fairly frequently, and that'll be your ticket to old age. Uh, Paul, as Winston Churchill once said, there's something about the outside of a horse that's good for the inside of a man. You'd agree with that? My word. Yeah. You sure that wasn't one of your your uh, your uh, faux pas? No, that was my old mate, Sir Winston. Oh, was it? Well, there you go. I think he's pretty dead right. There you are. Thanks for joining us on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Paul St. Vincent, been a delight to catch up. Thank you very much, John. Pleasure. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance by stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed, you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bins. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race, and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's easy performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance, the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes.